Promise No Promises mm. is a series of podcasts that has its origin in a research project initiated by Chus Martinez and supported by Instituto Sush, Art Stations mm. Foundation Switzerland and Gacina Kulcic. The aim of this project is to raise attention to the role, language and importance of art education in positively influencing gender equality in art and culture. The first chapters depart from material recorded during a two-day symposium at the Basel Art Institute on the 10th and 11th of October 2018. There, a group of artists, curators and art historians, moderated by poet Quinn Latimer and Chus Martinez, debated on the questions that surround the question of gender. Is there any beginning that can proceed without questions? We don't think so. And yet... Should the queries concern gender, the question of women, and transgender issues? Should questions of masculinity also be asked? And are these general inquiries similar to those queries that follow us to work, within and without the arts? Are practical questions relevant, those that redefine our thinking on the matter? Are old and new feminist concerns arising from a spectrum of feminism adequate to cover the entire spectrum of questions that we may need to ask. Are these queries an exercise we may desire as well as a protocol we may embark on to test the equality health of specific professional and personal situations? Do you think you can avoid having to deal with all these issues? Are you afraid of talking? Does the sound of your own voice give you pleasure or make you wince? How much money do you want to earn? Do you think your career will continue to rise in the near future? Are you afraid of your own desires? Is it better to remain mute or to disclose your ambition, even if many times you seem to not find the words to express it? I want to start this morning's session with a couple of questions, very basic questions actually, but they, I find them still unresolved and um, they bug me, so I wanted to share them and I hope that some of them resonate with you and, and are helpful for our discussion today. There's a, a line, I think it's by Fran Lebowitz actually, where she says that once, uh, when she was a young woman in New York and she started working as a writer and an editor, the first thing she realized was that she had two jobs and she would have two jobs for the rest of her life every time she went to work. And that work was the work of doing what she was doing, which is being a writer, and the work of being a woman. And that you always have to sort of handle both of these because you're never looked at as just as what you're doing. You're looked at as a woman doing this. There is an incredible book that I, I fall in love with by Machado de Assis that is called The Academies of Siam that was published in the middle of the 19th century where this Brazilian writer writes about two people falling in love, one being a man, the other being a woman, the woman being raised as a man, the man being raised as a woman, the woman falling in love with a man that's actually a woman, the woman fell in love with a man that's actually 
a woman again, and then at the end it all turns into this kind of fluidity of genders and trespassing of questions of biology and culture and how actually fiction plays an enormous role in the perception of these two people among themselves, them marrying, them being very happy, and then deciding at a certain point when the fluidity stabilizes and the man is a man and the woman is a woman to exchange again and start from scratch. And I always wonder, where's this imagination come from? Is this an imagination that, that is coming from Brazilian folk? It's coming from literature? What is actually uh, was generated? And it was to my surprise that I started to read two kinds of literature, one dedicated to the animals and to nature, and one dedicated to gender. And then all of a sudden, both uh, paths of research cross, and they meet in a point. At that point was the middle of the 17th century France, where uh, Louis XIV opened his zoo. So the year 1655 was dedicated to the animals in France. The king dedicated the year to the animals because he opened that zoologicum, and this zoo was not only for him and the court, but for the first time in history, he opened that zoo to everyone. So it's one of the parts of the park of Versailles. But interesting is also that he did a big transformation of the idea of what animals play in the kingdom. Before he, his father, his grandfather, was not um, dedicating the, the years to the animals, but also the animals that they have in mind were the wild animals, not, the, not birds, not beauty, not sensuality. So he thought that it's a time to transfer the, the wilden fights in between the animals and actually um, incorporate only those animals that provoke sensuality, that make you feel different, that they recall a different way of sensing. And there's extensive literature about it. But what it tells is that from the very beginning, there is a wish that there is no difference in the genders, that actually there is an equality, there is a possibility of a fluidity, there is a history for that possibility of equality. And it is this history that I think we need to reclaim. And it's that history that needs to be reclaimed in many ways, and it's a history which is very, very difficult to reclaim, but it's interesting that there is, uh, there is a record and this record is also leaving traces, and the traces are also making law. So it is in the law and in the traces and in the fictions and in the behaviors and in the societies that we create with all these elements uh, that we need to trust and we need to trust in our action. And I think this is kind of the, um, you know, the frame of what we are um, doing today. Chus told me that I'm doing a performance today. Um, so I um, please bear with me because I have to change my clothes. So yeah, um, my dress. Um, I bought it in a, uh, at, at a street vendor in Hong Kong last week. These types of shops, they have like, I actually l love these shops. I, there's also in, in Tehran, there's also a couple of these shops where you find these t-shirts that have um, sort of erratic poetry that I, I always thought they're kind of compiled by algorithms because they're so deeply poetic, um, like whatever, like 
When rain falls, I love you more in summer, forever, sparkly or something. Um, and somehow then this landed on on one of these shirts, right? And and I wonder, is this a mistake or is this kind of a glitch of, of an algorithm that shows, uh, you know, the wrong type of word that doesn't really resound with the kind of romantic um, nature that these t-shirts normally have. But then I thought, no, actually it could also be very purposefully, you know, that's how I imagine like the algorithms basically um, extracting from lists of trending words and then of course austerity would come up as one of them and it's uh, in you know for an algorithm it it doesn't have any other value than love or rain or forever right but it's not just the word because it's a combination of visual elements so there's also the rose the rose I don't know I was associated with kind of romantic desire maybe like you want to touch, but then oh, there's the thorn, right? I mean, this one doesn't really have thorns, but um, but it has these um, beaded embellishments um, on on. I don't know if you see that, but um, it's not. It's also interesting because it's not the kind of Swarovski crystal meth type. Um, Beads, but it's it's more kind of more goth, more it's, it's black, and and looks kind of studded. So it gives it a more dark or more gloomy uh, kind of glamour. Um, and together with the word austerity and the rose, it kind of it makes this ensemble um, that is more than than just um, just the wording itself. Um, so, but the word itself is is um, synonym for redistribution of wealth, but also power and, and access to education, to rights, to health uh, care, to all sorts of things. And I would suggest that it's a word or a wording coined by white supremacist patriarchy um, and the different forms it in which it operates. Uh, so, I mean, and mostly we know it as as, you know, something that is um, proclaimed when when banks do very kind of uh, risky business and then governments have to buy out the banks and then they tell their citizens, well, now we all have to stand together in these tough times and do this together. Uh, so we, sorry, but we can't have any more education or culture or healthcare or rights or any of that. Um, but we have to go through this together, which basically means that everyone has to pay for the banks. I mean, you know all this stuff, right? Um, but what I think is important is that it's a tool um, of a certain group of people um, staying in power. And um, and I, I would say it's, it's very closely related to what patri patriarchy is and uh, and as you said earlier, it's also something that we see um, in full bloom at the moment. I put the name Promise No Promises because when I was an, an assistant teacher or assistant to a teacher or to a professor, very young at the university, um, he opened the door every morning. We shared the, the 
the office, and then he said, ah, come on, the future belongs to women. And I said, fuck you, like in perfect Spanish. And then he found it very cute and so on. And then um, like uh, I told it to my mother, and my mother said, the only thing these men are after is sleeping with you. I was like, okay. And then uh, he said it again, like the future belongs to women. I said, fuck you. And then it became like, you know, like a code word. Every time that we went into a Congress and so on, he would say that, I would say that, it became like a performance and so on. Uh, many years later, we are very good friends. Um, he comes and visits me when I'm a student abroad. And then um, I said, like, he said to me, D -d 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 do you know that you are the only one that, that we, did not, we did not sleep with? We, the staff. And then I said, uh, yes, I noticed years later, and, and, and I was like incredibly ashamed. And then I start to think, uh, a, a, couple of many questions came to my mind. I think it cannot be that the people that win these scholarships that were so hard to win were stupid. So these women that were sleeping with these men were doing it for the different reason that these men were sleeping with this woman. And it's not in, in and then I started to learn to appreciate the woman sleeping with the men. But I also started to think that the men, in knowing that there is immense capacity and these immense talented people coming up, needed in a way to sleep with them to kind of produce an ambiguity into the system so that when these women become professors, all their lives, a doubt would remain in the head. And the doubt is, did I get the job because I was good, or did I get the job because I slept with that guy? And this kind of doubt is running through the system. And that's the doubt of, I am a good worker, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that much. That's really like the question that we need to put aside. I think I'm a better worker, I'm a better administrator, I'm better organizing, I'm a better communicator, I'm a better in pedagogy. I don't know, because that's definitely not the question, I think. And that's a question that's running through, through the system, and then we sleep with that question. And the question uh, is uh, like doing that with us so that we have that permanent doubt of I am a professor because I slept with somebody, or even if I wouldn't, or did I have fun doing it, or was it actually love? So all that, is love something that only happens in academia, or is a subtle harassment that I feel obliged to do it because what if I don't do it? And then years later, they come to my apartment and they say, well, <laughs> you were the only one. <laughs> so, and then you are also wonder why was I so ugly? That was my answer. And then he said, yes. So, but I think, I mean, you said, you know, you have to sleep with that question, but I think, I think actually, to put it in your former terms, that question, that question fucks us. Because that question is, is the skepticism that of misogyny, that it puts something in your brain and for the rest of your life you wonder, is it because of what I do or is it because I'm a woman? And this kind of skepticism, it's this kind of poison and it follows you through everything you do. Um, and I think this is this this kind of this kind of insidiousness, this kind of it's it's you know it's, it's a kind of thing that travels through you and it travels through everything that you do, like personally, professionally, and that that is that is the I mean this kind of skepticism, this question of being, and I, I wonder if if that question is also the like the sort of the beginning of the narrative of of knowing you're a woman, of being a woman, of, of being written by other people you know, because they're writing that skepticism into your story, and then that stays with you, and that becomes like a driving narrative throughout your life. 
And this is something that, um, that will not be taken away from outside, that it, it's, like, it's our sort of work to, to put it in the framework of language again. It's, it's our work to sort of change, change that story, as cliched as that sounds. I mean, on one hand, especially as a, as a writer and working in the art world, I think that self-skepticism and doubt is actually the most beautiful attribute of the writers and the artists and the people and, the, and the, the activists and the organizers, all the people I look to, those who do not have skepticism and doubt in their work, I immediately distrust. But there is something about this gendered skepticism and this gendered doubt that I find like very defeating when it comes from without instead of coming from within. So what to do about patriarchy um, if this is all about, uh, you know, uh, obviously unjust uh, redistribution of what should be equally distributed? What I guess we are all kind of asking ourselves and, and are really kind of shocked about is that despite um, it being fully unmasked at the moment, uh, you know, the, the remarkable preponderance of, of misogynist, racist, white men uh, coming to power in all sorts of places is just amazing. It's just... Um, uh, you know, you have you have to really wrap your hand around that, and and how can that be? Because also, it's not just them, but it's also their supporters who are often not male or not white. So you know, because they hope to get a piece of the cake, to be part of that small, tiny group that then receives is at the receiving end of of whatever is being redistributed. To, to go a little bit further, how did, how, how the kind of daily struggle, whether it's subtle or whether it's like sort of there and then not there, how that then affects the work you do. That even if um, the makeup of the editorial team uh, was quite female at the time and, and perhaps feminist, um, still the art world that they were de facto covering, I mean, most of the shows in these galleries that one reviews, you go to the back, are by white men. Like, that, that basically the kind of coverage, the equity in the coverage, would be a daily struggle to try to correct, to Absolutely. try to kind of correct the canon. The one thing at Freeze, we tended to have quotas. Mm -hmm. And um, then we had these long discussions where the editors would simply say, look, we cannot fulfill this quota. If we go to the Paris Gallery Weekend um, and 85% of the show are by white men, it's also weird then just to choose from the 15% left. Oh, so how do we cover this? It, it's an, this is an ongoing discussion because, of course, you also try to be a mirror of the art world. And if the art world has this setup, then you can slightly bend the mirror and t try to look into the corners and try to see the things that are happening and report on them and bring them into discourse. But you cannot, since as, as a magazine we are reporting from what is happening, we are not creating it, right. you can only choose from what is on offer. Um, it reminds me of the Sao Paulo Biennial, I believe, in 2008. Um, where the funding was too limited. So rather than you know scrambling and saying, okay, look, we're going to um, present whatever it is, improvise, etc. The curators decided to leave a completely empty floor. So I'm wondering if that would be something that an art magazine could do, 
to have the review section have it empty and say like, okay, look, we need more exhibitions by female artists in galleries, museums, etc., to be able to review them. So, so one big problem that I see in the art is that we kind of keep performing this neoliberal script of, of the fetish individual, um, aka the artist, um, who, whose life kind of um, hinges on, on recognition, on rewards, on acknowledgement, and, and is constantly precarious in that sense, and, and very susceptible to the promises of power, saying like, if, if you do this, I give you that. Or, you know, how do we make ourselves um, less, um, I don't know, yeah, less sustainable, uh, less susceptible to, uh, to, these, um, to these forces. Um, and and that's, that's what leads me to, to the next problem, or I would call it a question. Um, how do we do this in the arts? Right, because um, and not not as you know not as a topic for an artwork uh, or a, or a conference um, because that's easy we can do that like we do that all the time um, but what does it mean when we don't do art about something but when it's with you know when it's siding with uh, a struggle um, and what does that mean for not only for one's practice but also you know for one's career, um, economically, uh, you know, like all of these other consequences that, that, um, that are the tail end of what it means to be part of a struggle. I think um, part of the perversity of austerity and of that as a kind of structural system that's in place at the moment um, and has been actually for a long time, but it's more visible now, is um, on a personal level, this fetishization of work that many of us have. And I think that when, when one is not, all, is not born and entitled to the sort of halls of power and so forth, then the way one gets there often, if you're, if you're a woman, if you're queer, if you're a person of color, if you're poor, if you're not born in the capitals, is through this kind of overwork. It's this fetization of labor so that we are all used to being told, you work so well, you work so much. It's why we are where we are. And yet, I think that very thing is, is basically the flip side of the austerity mantra, which is we all have to, we all have to like let go of certain things. We all have to put more money in the pot to help out these things. I mean, when we're fetishizing labor and we're working twice as hard as other people who we're working with, what are we doing? We're kind of doing the same thing. We're working twice as hard for, for the same amount or less money. And I think this is like a mindset that one has to change because it's ingrained so deeply in what we do. And I think it's also, in some ways, it becomes part of your artistic practice, whatever form that practice takes. And I wonder, is there a way to, is there a way to work without this kind of mantra of overwork, of constantly putting yourself on the line, of covering for a larger group in which that is not their, that is not their sort of way of like methodology of being? I think that uh, solidarity and you know, kind of union movements um, have shown that yeah, you need you, if you're alone trying to do this work, it's extremely hard because you will always have somebody who's more desperate um, for many reasons, um, like just needing the money, you know, um, to actually still contribute in the way that we have taught ourselves and been taught to. Um, 
So I think, yeah, solidarity and actually also talking to other women and also other men is extremely important. Um, and yes, there's a lot of fear uh, when people realize that they're losing their privilege. So a lot of the work that we need to do is to make it clear that this is um, a temporary phase, that the fear is and the discomfort is there um, now, but that it is all for a better future, which is again doing double the work. And no promises. That was the thing. <laughs> <I> was <laughs> no yeah. Well, I, I, I was just going to say it's uh, it's a it's a tricky promise, but because actually no, the privilege will be gone because privilege is you know that you have something more and that you kind of stand on someone else's back you know like either like you you know you knowingly stand on the back or you're like oh oh sorry i didn't you know i didn't see you <laughs> um, but but We're that privilege there. that someone else is carrying you will be gone i agreed with this and i mean the thing is not no no promises about a better future but also making it very clear it's not about swapping places it's not about yeah. Making women now to come into the privileged position men have been in. In the end of the day, it's about however questionable equality is because it's so dependent on context. And in, but still, it's about <coughs> enabling a kind of like suppressed majority of people yeah, but to get to their to to fulfill what they want to do. And the other people will lose privileges. Yeah, but as you say, it might also come with loss. But they would really advocate for the fact that we don't know. Mm -hmm. So it's a transformation. And since it's a radical transformation, we have no idea what's going to happen after. I am after the same rights, yes. What happened in the behavior of the society when this big transformation takes place, it's something that's ahead of us. And, and that's exactly what I think that we need to um, be ready. And I think that if there is something that helps is art and culture, I do think that helps immensely, more than anything else. And that's why austerity cuts go to that DNA. They want it out. They want it out because it's training something. And when I said um, that Louis XIV was doing the zoo and it was the first pamphlet with the voices of women talking about sexuality, I'm saying that because it was at the peak of absolutism, when the king declared that he did not need a prime minister for the first time in history and was an absolute ruler. And it was then when these voices started to appear. Not that now I'm thinking also I'm not promising. I don't think that uh, the fascism that is really uh, washing all the systems right now is going to bring something fantastic because it's so bad that it needs to be good. No, I'm not Catholic. I, it may be really only bad. So, and it's the same with the loss of privileges. It may only be bad, but we don't know it. And then because it's bad, it, it would affect radically all the institutions. Institutions are super needed because they structure the way we relate and connect and we really need it. We need the out. We need the out of the white cube and we need a different white cube like a curtain cube, uh, you know, a symbiotic one, an osmotic cube, whatever you call it, cube, but we need some sort of membrane taking and, and breathing and what the organism that comes out of it is, no idea. So struggle. How, how do we do this? Um, it's, it sounds like work. How do we understand struggle as non-hierarchical and not create a competition between the different parties who are coming together in solidarity to, to carry out the struggle together? It sounds like work. 
It sounds hard. It sounds difficult. This line has so many reverberations. But you saying it wearing a dress that says austerity, I think, suggests that, that economic violence, which is often misogynistic violence, it's racist violence, it's environmental violence, it's all of that in one, in one thing, is, is kind of the conditions in which we are all living and working and being and trying to be artists and trying to pay our rent. And it's, um, and it's a kind of a very profane way in which to talk about the struggle the struggle that you suggested just now of both wanting to, um, wanting to create a place in the world where you can do the work that you want to do and create the work that you want to and get paid and, and have a life. And at the same time, this kind of skepticism about entering those hallways of power. What am I, what am I trying to take part in? Why am I doing this? And yet also maybe not either having the... Um, the ability or the kind of circumstances where you could completely opt out. Um, but at the same time, remaining in a, in a kind of Shizu approach where, of course, like, I don't know if, if that also happens to you, but uh, when I talk about equality, it also fucks up my mind because I'm like, wait a minute, equality? Do I really believe in equality? Like, but it's more difficult like it's more complex than that right like we are all different and then you you come into this like wanting to kind of um uh, have it more complex than that but that's always uh that then always kind of slows down the struggle because when you go wait we have to first discuss what we mean by equal and then you sit down for days and you discuss it by that time the guy who you wanted to attack has already gone yet. Um, so so like how do we learn to be shizo in the sense that we have, we can immediately go with our practical demands and say, wait a minute, sit down, I need to talk to you, I need this. And at the same time, maintain the radical imagination or the mental space in which we um, also just, uh, you know, just claim that there is something that Fred Moten calls the undercommons, and that we actually want to be part of that, rather than get our equal share in the fucked up capitalist system that we are um, stuck in, right? So, so how, that, how do we maintain this, this, uh, this shizo space in which we at the same time um, demand better laws to protect survivors, and uh, also question law as a form, as an inherent form of sovereign violence and power. So it's, thanks, that's basically all I had to say. Corpse life or live from Athens. It is a kind of fame like a woman. It is a kind of non-fame, like a woman. Corpse that keeps you company, like a woman. Through the billable month, like a woman. Each of your non-native, like a woman. Countries cooling, pink sunsetting, like a woman. Your fine, laborious recourse, like a woman. Or recalling services you provided in them, like a woman. Red and black of poems in them, like a woman language to ascribe some violence in them, like a woman. Bill's flower from her mouth, a kind of debt 
like a woman. Floral arrangement, red and black, like a woman. Her corpse keeps no one company, like a woman. Except your text, language assuming, like a woman. Sprawl of this or some sovereign body, like a woman. All of its violence practiced on colonies, like a woman. Performed there so many capital experiments, like a woman. Colonies can have colonies too, like a woman. It is a kind of body the crowd chants, like a woman. It is a kind of non-body no one says softly, like a woman. In the northern states, then in the southern, like a woman. This work you do, the work of the text, like a woman, was nothing when you read, like a woman, or could not read her country, know her autopsy, like a woman. Report its monster topography, you trialed from it, like a woman. Who could, who cared for the beloved body, like a woman? Beloved country, your earliest temperate region, like a woman. As you raved inside your treble, no trill season, like a woman. Your long debt, your open Mediterranean, like a woman. Sober profile of coast, her yellow palette, like a woman. Beloved that once articulated mother, like a woman. A kind of mother you wrote, like a woman. A kind of non-mother you wrote, like a woman. Sunset pours over the hill, temple of its pale crown, like a woman. White, then gold, then red, the usual poem, like a woman. It's unexceptional, experimental architecture, like a woman. Offering first a flag, then a place of worship, like a woman. Report to a crowd, like a woman. Report to a debt-dazzled crowd, like a woman. Read the report to a crowd, like a woman. No one said this would be easy, like a woman. No woman, like a woman. No price to, like a woman. No measure yet, like a woman. No principle except, like a woman. This poem, like a woman. Not quite relief this, like a woman. Language that pours itself from vessels, like a woman. Held high by the crowd, like a woman. Their hands so many poems, like a woman. Canceling this, like a woman. Canceling some debt, like a woman. Canceling, like a woman. Participants were Stefanie Hessler, Natascha Sartre, Hanna Weinberger, Alexandra Navratil, Julieta Aranda, Elise Lammer, Emily Ding, Laura Miriam Leonardi, Selina Grüter and Michelle Graf, Camille Alenia, Axel Stiefel, Katharina Brandl, Laga Kondo, Raffaella Naldi Rosano and Mareike Dittmann. Moderated by Chus Martinez and Quinn Latimer. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please go to our website www.institut-kunst.ch or request information or subscription to our newsletter at info.kunst.hdk.fhnw.ch. Institutu Sush is part of a new museum initiative 
open to the public from January 2nd, 2019. More information can be found at www.museumsouche.ch. Editing and Sound Design, Elena Caesar. Research Assistant, Alice Wilke. Recordings, Konrad Siegel. Choir by Inka Teha and Emilia Alvarez. Produced by Institut Kunst Basel and Institut du Susch, Art Stations Foundation Switzerland 2018. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.